Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Bookwaves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. This interview with Margaret Atwood was recorded in December 2006. It is the fifth of seven interviews with the celebrated Canadian author conducted for Bookwaves and its predecessor, Probabilities. Links to the first four interviews posted for Radio Walensky can be found on the kpfa.org page for this podcast. My guest is Margaret Atwood, whose latest book is a collection of short stories, most of which are interrelated, titled Moral Disorder. Recent books are The Tent, The Penelopead, and Writing with Intent. The Tent is a very strange collection of pieces. As I was reading Writing with Intent, in the essay you said some people thought it was writing within tents. And I kept thinking, I wonder if that's why you call this The Tent. No, no. The Tent is the third one of those kinds of books that I've done. And the other two were earlier, and they got put together in this country in a book called Good Bones and Simple Murders. They're not any recognizable form. They're all short pieces, they're all fiction pieces, but some of them are monologues, some of them are pretend science fiction, some of them are pretend bits of history. They go like that. How did they come about? I mean, were they written specifically for magazines or just sitting down doodling or what? No, (laughs) just (laughs) sitting down doodling. Everything is sitting down doodling on some level. It's all fooling around with words. They accumulate over time. In a way, it's like a book of poems that you write them here and there, and then you realize that there's a kind of stack of them. When putting together a book of poems or a book like The Tent, how careful are you in terms of what story or piece goes before another? I'm very picky about it, and what I do is I lay them all out on the floor like a deck of cards. And then I shuffle them around. Then I put that together and read it. And then I lay them out all on the floor again. So there's a lot of crawling around on the floor that goes into a book like that. Now that we have computers, you can do a certain amount of that on the screen. But it's not the same as crawling around on the floor. It's almost like you could take a a CD of music and shuffle and come up with almost a different story each time. You could have a completely different book of poems, not a completely different one, but one with a radically different import by making the last ones first or putting other ones in different orders. And so it is with a, a book of pieces like The Tent, and so it is with books of short stories, anything that, that is composed of a number of different building blocks Of course, it's going to look different if you've got the red block on the top and the blue blocks underneath and the green blocks at the ends than if you've got the green blocks on the top, etc. Skipping ahead to Moral Disorder, even though these are short stories, all of them except the last appear to be in a a chronological order, perhaps. 
They're kind of in chronological order, but within some of the stories, we move back and forth between then and now. So if it were a piece of music, say if it were a piece of Wagner, you would hear these light motifs coming in, and that would remind you of something that you had read in a previous story, and it might foreshadow something you're going to read in the next one. The second story is called The Art of Cooking and Serving, and it is from the second story that the cover comes. Because on the cover of this book, there is a picture which is the same girl wearing two different outfits, and both of them are maid outfits. And one of them is what you were supposed to wear in the daytime as a maid, and the second one is what you're supposed to wear in the evening as a maid. And that is directly out of a real book called The Art of Cooking and Serving, which came out in 1930, and it was put out by the Crisco Company. And in the story in my book called The Art of Cooking and Serving, Nell, who is about 11, is reading this book as her favorite book because it tells you how to live the gracious life, which she herself is not at that moment living. I got a sense, it's been a long time since I read it, but I, I see connections between this and Cat's Eye. Well, there are some connections in that there are the same or similar, but seen from a very different angle, mother and father people in it. What is different about this one is that in Cat's Eye there's two children, and in this one there are three because the central character has a much younger sister, and several of the stories are about the much younger sister then and now. The final story seems to be more about your own past. There's a lab, the father studies insects. Yeah, but that's in Cat's Eye as, as well. Talking about Cat's Eye and talking about the relationship to your own life uh, does bring in questions, Margaret Atwood, about the relationship of fiction and autobiography, particularly in this book and again in, in Cat's Eye. Now, I know to some degree all books are autobiographical. And, and to a certain extent, they're not. And whenever yeah. you're dealing with an author who says, I've written an autobiography, what people immediately think is, how much has that person lied if you write something that says fiction yeah. on it, you think, oh, well, it's secretly autobiography. <laughs> I will point out that the person in this book is not a writer. She's an editor. Uh, yes, but that is not at all the same thing. Not at all. I've been both, I can tell you. Of course, the question is when you're talking about the relationship. Obviously, when you're writing a book like Handmaid's Tale or Lady Oracle, you're, you're moving much further afield. Okay, let me tell you two stories about those two books. Okay. Okay, Lady Oracle. When I started promoting it, the very first reading I did, I got up there and I said, this is not autobiography. I have never been a 250-pound woman. I never lost a whole bunch of weight. It's not about me. Blah, blah, blah. I did my reading, Q&A. The first question was, how did you lose all that weight? People don't believe you. They think that if there's a character in the book and they kind of get into the story, that it somehow has to be you. The Handmaid's Tale, I once had a guy from the audience say, of course, this book is autobiographical. And I said, how could it be? It takes place in the future. And he says, you're not going to get out of it that way. <laughs> so people will think, no matter what it is, Kafka's Metamorphosis, a guy turns into a beetle. Everybody knows that secretly, France Kafka. <laughs> well, of course, you know, in a book like Moral Disorder, when you do have close proximity, let's say, yeah, to your own. Yeah, there's two absolutely real people in it. One is the high school English teacher, dead now, you know, and her name even, even really was Miss Bessie because once a person is dead, you can do that. 
And uh, the other one is the story called The Entities, in which there's a real estate agent who is an absolutely real person. A lovely, wonderful character. I just adored her. She is still on the planet, but no longer with us. If you know what I mean, did I ask permission of the children? Yes, I did. Did they like the story? Yes, they did. The horse in White Horse. That was a real horse. But on the farm, which is described in the three middle stories, there's actually a lot more of everything than I put in the stories. So instead of one dog, there were four dogs. And instead of one horse, there were two horses. But that white horse that's described in the story called White Horse really did exist, except that her name was not Gladys. I changed the name of the horse to protect the innocent. (laughs) Margaret Atwood, when you're talking about the relationship here of fiction and nonfiction. Clearly, the characters, Nell isn't you, Tig isn't your husband. They're approximations of parts of us, let's put it that way. Which is what fiction writers do. That's what they do. But there's other material in there. Uh, There's a a lot about what it was like the first year on the farm, growing the vegetables, the garden. Uh, There's a comment by one of the local farmers. This couple moves to a farm and immediately Nell starts a garden, a green garden. And there's a comment Nell says to herself, I can tell I'm not really a farm girl because all the other farmers' wives just go to the market. Was, is that a real... They go to the supermarket. <laughs> yeah. I mean, did that, is, is that really from your life? Yeah, we really did live on a farm for 10 years. We really did grow all of those things except more. As I say, there was more. And uh, we never did get into pigs and goats, but... We had just about everything else. Why did you choose now to create this alternative version of your own life? Well, I think probably, as Robertson Davies said, when asked why he suddenly burst into fiction at the age of 59, having not done it for quite a while, he said two words. He said, people died, meaning that now that people had died, he was free to write a lot of these stories that he felt that he mightn't. He might have hurt people or offended them somehow if he had done it before. So I think in some, with some kinds of material, you just have to be far enough away from it to be able to do it. So I could say people died. I could say people got older. And in some cases, I could say people got mentally healthier. One of the central themes of the book, Moral Disorder, concerns this woman, Nell, and her relationship with the guy she lives with, who's not really her husband until I think toward the end he may or may not be, and his other wife, Una. People died, and people died in exactly the way that is in that story in which that person dies, exactly as described. In the story called The Entities, the first wife dies in this house, and then Nell, who actually owns the house that the first wife has been living in, has to sell it. And the real estate agent, who's this wonderful person called Lily, keeps saying it's dark. You know, the house is dark, and she's afraid of it because she's actually been there on the day when the first wife died. Nell does go and find one of those crystal people who exercises the house and says that there aren't any spirits in it at the moment, but that there's a pathway for the entities in the kitchen. Okay, did this happen? The entities, exactly. Yeah, of course it happened. (laughs) There's some things you can't make up. But when you do write them down, people might think, as I saw a little hint of surprise in your voice, 
She must have made that up. I've talked to several people who said that the problem about writing reality as fiction is that coincidences happen more in reality and strange things happen more in reality. And in fiction, you'd go, oh, that's not real. In fiction, you have to ration them to a certain extent and kind of sprinkle them here and there. But it is true about the entities. And I actually did dance around in a circle to move the pathway for the entities to come and go out into the yard where it wouldn't bother people so much. I'd like to talk to you about a book that I loved called The Penelopeiad. Uh, it came out in a small press, Canongate. Not so small anymore, growing by leaps and bounds. And how did I come to write The Penelopeiad? Well, this young fellow called Jamie Bing, who used to be a disc jockey. Here's where it gets stranger than fiction. He used to be a disc jockey, and he ran a nightclub in Edinburgh called Chocolate City. And when I was signing the thousand copies of this book for his boxed sets, he actually disc jockeyed the room that I was signing them in. He ran music, signing music, quite peppy signing music to make us all keep signing. Anyway, he got this idea, I think they probably all got a bit into the sauce at the Frankfurt Book Fair, of having the Myths series. I do wish they had called it the Myth series because it's a lot easier to pronounce. The idea was that they would ask a number of internationally known writers from all sorts of different countries, including Russia and India and Israel and all sorts of places, to pick a myth, any myth, and rewrite it in any way that they wished. And the only stipulation was that it had to be 25 to 30,000 words. And he persuaded me of this, because he's a very persuasive guy, before I'd had my coffee in the morning. And I said yes. It was the same amount of money for everybody no negotiation, and it seemed like kind of a small, fast thing to do and help a small publisher and help them grow, etc. So I said yes, and then, of course, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it for a couple of years. My German publisher was phoning me up and saying, Margaret, we're waiting for your myth. (laughs) So I just uh, finally said, you know, I just don't think I can do this. I said to my English agent, and she said, Jamie Bing will be gutted. And that was so frightening to me that I started writing this book. It's strange because reading it, it seemed like it must have been a wonderful thing to write because it's so much fun to read. Once I got into it, once I realized that that's what I was writing, it was. But it was the period before that when I was trying to write something else that wasn't going, wasn't happening. This book, the story of Penelope. It's not a retelling of the Odyssey. Uh, because it's got more in it than is in the Odyssey. It uses other mythic material. For instance, the fact that her father threw her into the ocean, that her mother was a naiad. And, of course, we keep forgetting that she was the cousin of Helen of Troy and that Helen was Odysseus's first choice, except he didn't win. He didn't uh, win the contest. The book consists of the story plus a Greek chorus, which is sung by these maids, the maids who who were murdered by Odysseus. That is in the Odyssey. Absolutely. It's at the end, and it's so shocking to people that sometimes they just leave it out. For instance, the BBC did the Odyssey on the radio recently, and, and they just left out the maids being killed because people find it so distressing. Bringing in, I guess, modern sensibility to this story changes the nature of the story, obviously. If you're trying to tell a story that's pre-existing, putting it into a different context and trying to maintain the same story all at the same time. You know, people have done that before. Oh, sure. Grendel. People have retold. I love Grendel. It's such a great book. 
but people have, have retold Odyssey and Iliad material before quite a bit, and not just recently. Troilus and Cressida, of course, not only Chaucer, but also Shakespeare, quite two quite different takes on that story. Penelope, lots of people down through the ages have written poems from her point of view. Ovid has a series called Heroides, which are letters from famous mythic women to men and in their lives, and Penelope's is basically where are you? You better get back here. What are you doing just rummaging around in the <laughs> Mediterranean? Uh, so that's a, it's an old telling stories that are known is a very old thing to do. And you have the advantage of the fact that people know the story and therefore you can bounce meanings off that story that they already know. You can put a twist on it. And there have been all sorts of twists put on Odysseus. Tennyson has him as a romantic hero, for instance, whereas Dante has him as somebody who's burning in hell because he was such a liar, thief, and cheat. And amongst the ancients, he had a very ambiguous reputation. He was the person who could talk his way into anything and talk his way out of anything. And oh, he was known for being very crafty and very tricksy indeed. That Trojan horse was his idea. And his two patron gods are Hermes, who is the patron god, among other things, of travelers, thieves, and tricksters, and Athena, who is another person who's very interested in tricksy things. And at one point in the Odyssey, she even says to him, Oh, Odysseus, I just love you so much. You, you tried to fool even me. But he must have been very charming. Because you'll notice that everybody that helps him throughout his life, oh, just about everybody who helps him out is a woman. So he must have had considerable charm. Seems to have had it for your Penelope. She loves him, <laughs> but he is the way he is. <laughs> While I was reading, I, I kept thinking, you know, this is fine as it is, but this book could have been a big book. Did it ever cross your mind? You're going, well, you know, I could have done more with this if uh, I had the well, room. Somehow, I think it might have spoiled it. I kind of like the shortness of the form because you don't want to write, at least I didn't want to write a, a big epic. A big epic already exists. It's called the, the Odyssey. So you don't want to do one better on that. But I, I did want to make something of those maids, and making much more of them would have been, I think, too much. But they bothered me as a teenager when I first read the Odyssey. We're now turning this into a theater piece, by the way. Oh, great. Uh, we're not calling it a musical, and we're not calling it a play. We're calling it a cabaret, because it is that mixture of spoken and, and sung. And we did the first bit of it. We did about 30 minutes of it to help launch the book. We did it in London in St. James Piccadilly. The person who directed it was Phyllida Lloyd, who did Mamma Mia, she's so good. And she found three great actresses who could not only act, but they could sing, and they also played musical instruments. So they were the maids, and they were also Helen of Troy, and one of them was Odysseus in a red baseball cap with Ithaca on it, and played him as the kind of cockney wide boy. And Penelope's mother, the naiad in a blue rain cape, and I was Penelope. I did the Penelope role. And that was a lot of fun. Is it going to be expanded in, into something more than that, then? Yeah, we're making it into a full, the full story with all the made pieces in it. It has to be shaped, of course, because you can't get quite all of it in. But 
you can see what range those actresses will have because some of the things the maids do are ballads and some of them are declamatory pieces and they do a little playlet within the story. They give a sort of lecture, so they can do all of these things. Margaret Atwood, changing the subject a little bit, I want to talk about uh, politics and uh, your book, Writing with Intent, a collection of essays, reviews, and personal prose. You talk a little in the beginning about how you always found writing book reviews kind of like being back in school and writing book reports. Do you still feel that way? It's hard work. It really is quite hard work, and especially, well, I, I just did one, by the way. You'll see it shortly. It's for the New York Review of Books, and it's a novelist called Richard Powers. I interviewed him. Oh, did you? What's yeah. he like, really? Good guy. Is he a good guy, or is he is he really a human being, or is he from the planet Vulcan? <laughs> no, he's a human being. It was a, it was for uh, Time of Our Singing. It was okay. Have you you've read that, right? Yeah, I had, this is what I mean by stuff being hard. Of course, if you if you're going to do a book by somebody like that, you have to read the other books. You have to. Well, I have to. This is why it's hard. You see, it's called the Echo Maker, just coming out. You'll say what I think of it in this review, but you don't write short reviews for the New York Review of Books. You write 4,000 words. It gives you a bit of scope. You also introduce several books, classics. How do you compare, say, writing a, a, an introduction to, uh, to a classic book like an H.G. Wells novel with writing uh, these book reviews? Mm, yes, The Island of Dr. Moreau. I did an introduction to that, and I also did one for Ryder Haggard's She, only because it was, once upon a time in another life, a, a specialty of mine, that, that period. So I knew both of these things quite well. Well, of course, with a classic, you're up against all of the other things that people have said about those books. And with a new book, I try not to read any other reviews. I want my take on that new book to be to be mine. I, I want it to be my reading of it and not to peek at what other people are saying. But with the classic, you can't help knowing what a lot of other people have said. And for instance, Jung thought Ryder Haggard, she was just amazing. He would, wouldn't he? It had a lot of caves in it. Well, with The Island of Dr. Moreau, it was fun to go back and and read that and, and do it because you see things that you might not have seen the first or second time through. There's also a long essay on Elmore Leonard. I love Elmore Leonard. And Elmore Leonard is so happy. I, I did that for the New York Review of Books, and he wrote me a note that said, Margaret, I was so thrilled. These are my first footnotes. I've never had footnotes before. I've gone up so much in the estimation of my friends. That brings up the question of the relationship of, quote, literature and popular fiction. Could we even think in those terms before 50 years have passed? Well, of course, a lot of stuff we now think of as classic whatnot was popular literature in its day. Charles Dickens' old curiosity shop when the copies were coming over on a ship from England to America, the pier was crowded with people dressed in black and weeping because little Nell had died. It becomes classic at a certain point when it gets into a series with a certain kind of cover on it. You know, and a lot of stuff has to be footnoted. You think, oh, well, it must be a classic. But, I mean, Scott's Waverly novels, they were hugely popular, enormously popular. 
I think there's good writing and, and there's writing that works for what it's doing and, right. and then there's writing that doesn't work for what it's doing and, and that is the only distinction worth making really. There's some people who say, well, I don't want to read about any sort of books that have giant squid that talk crawling around in them. And that that's their choice. But you can write well about giant squid that talk, and you can write badly about giant squid that talk. When I see a writer like, okay, Philip K. Dick. Have you read Philip K. Dick? I love Blade Runner the movie. It's a wonderful piece of stylization. It's real classic. It's it's actually better than the book, in my opinion. But you know, he's a, he's an originator of amazing stories, rather than particularly. You wouldn't necessarily go to him for perfection of style, as no. you might go to Robert Louis Stevenson and Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde, an equally creepy kind of story. Margaret Atwood, how hard do you keep up with what's going on now in terms of literature? Do you? No, nobody can because there's too much of it. You drive yourself completely mad. I think like most other people, it's it's happenstance and word of mouth and people say, oh, you really have to read this and, and so you do or you just might be wandering around in a bookstore and something catches your eye and you think, I think I'm, I'm going to try this one here. If you tried to systematically read everything that, that came out, well, you, you couldn't. You you couldn't physically do it. There's another essay about George Orwell. There's some reference to life today in there. I think the essay was written in 2002 or 2003. Amazing uh, couple of paragraphs in which you talk about the jackbooted state totalitarianism of Orwell's 1984 and the hedonistic ersatz paradise of Brave New World where absolutely everything is a consumer good and human beings are engineered to be happy. With the fall of the Berlin Wall in 89, it seemed for a time that Brave New World had won. From henceforth, state control would be minimal, and all we'd have to do was go shopping and smile a lot and wallow in pleasures, popping a pill or two when depression set in. But with the notorious 9-11 World Trade Center and Pentagon attacks in the year 2001, all that changed. Now it appears we face the prospect of two contradictory dystopias at once, open markets, closed minds. Because state surveillance is back with a vengeance, the torturer's dreaded Room 101 has been with us for millennia. Lots of countries have their versions of it, their ways of silencing troublesome dissent. Democracies have traditionally defined themselves by, among other things, openness and the rule of law. But now it seems that we in the West are tacitly legitimizing the methods of the darker human past, upgraded technologically and sanctified to our own uses, of course. For the sake of freedom, freedom must be renounced. Chilling, isn't it? And as I was reading that, I mean, this is this is a few years old, a couple years old, and it's even more true today than it was then. Well, as a luck. Well, there's a couple of pieces in there that are kind of more true, and one of them I wrote actually just before Iraq was invaded, and its original title was um, Napoleon's Two Biggest Mistakes. Oddly enough, it got reprinted by the Daily Telegraph in England, a somewhat rightish newspaper, but at that time it was owned by Conrad Black, who is a Napoleon nut, and will print anything about Napoleon. (laughs) But Napoleon's two biggest mistakes were, number one, messing with other people's religion in, in the Peninsular Wars in Spain, thus kicking off the guerrilla war 
That finally defeated the French and gave us Goya's drawings. And the second mistake was invading a country he didn't have to invade. That would be Russia. And also thinking that when he got to Moscow and entered it, he had won. I shouldn't say it's no fun writing about things that have already happened, but (laughs) (laughs) it hadn't happened yet, you see. But anybody who follows military history had reason to be somewhat perturbed by what was about to happen in that part of the world and and anybody who had followed that part of the world and I have to say also Afghanistan a notoriously hard place to go into militarily always has been all the way back to Alexander the Great who said Afghanistan is a very easy place to march into and a very hard place to march out of so it was looking at the terrain and looking at history and thinking is this a really great idea or not? There's also something I have to say as well, which is that if you're going to send an army anywhere, you know, for any purpose, we won't even talk about the purpose or any of that, but if you're going to send people in, having them risk their lives, you need to support them with what they need to have. Mussolini was a bad military commander. He didn't give his army proper foot gear. So you send people in there, and you don't give them the backup that they need. You put them in jeopardy. It's not good from any point of view. Number one, a lot more of them are going to get killed than you jovially think ahead of time. And number two, they're not going to accomplish whatever it was you thought they should be doing. Margaret Atwood, have you looked at Handmaid's Tale recently? Well, I have in several different forms. Number one, it's been made into a really pretty good opera. So yes, I have. And of course, it is the book that an awful lot of young people ask me about because they've had it as a text in school. It seems like that is the world that the evangelists of the Midwest and the South would like to see here. And, and you, you wrote about it you know, a long time ago. Yes, but I was paying attention then. You know, it's like Napoleon's two biggest mistake. I was paying attention then. Now, we're nowhere near that yet because, for one thing, we haven't got those clothings. But people say to me, oh, boy, is this about the Taliban? I say, actually, it's about history because I put nothing into The Handmaid's Tale that people haven't done at one time or another. And all you need to do is go back a number of decades in our own society and you'll find those kinds of things were there. So don't tell me it can't happen here. America didn't start in the 18th century with the Declaration of Independence. It started in the 17th century with a theocracy. There's also a small essay about Afghanistan, and you did say that that a little bit of handmade stale crept in when you did put on a shot door. I did, indeed. I was, I was there six weeks before Daoud was assassinated. The assassination of Daoud is the event that kicked off the chain of subsequent events that we have seen unfolding, because when he was assassinated by a right-wing faction who thought he was becoming too moderate, that started a civil war, and one faction in that civil war invited in the Russians, who have always wanted to be in there anyway, always have wanted to be in there, and they were lured to their destruction in Afghanistan. That's what really put the spike in in the Soviet Union. Then we all know what happened then. The U.S. funded the Taliban, and 
Osama bin Laden worked with them, and then when the Russians toppled, the United States withdrew without helping out their former pals, and look at what we've got today. You're from Canada. You live in Canada. I know out here in Berkeley, we sometimes feel powerless. When you look to your neighbors to your south, when your friends and relatives look, what do they see? Well, first of all, I travel a lot in the United States, and all of the people I meet are just wonderful people because they're self-selected. They like my books. Uh, I'm not one of those people who thinks that the United States is one homogeneous lump, you know, that you can even say them and mean anything by it. If you look in Discover magazine, you'll see that the red states and blue states are actually a myth. Everybody's got some of this and some of that in it, and also opinions can change, and it's really a matter of of values rather than necessarily these people are all Republicans, those people are all Democrats. So I think it's a pretty complex place, the United States. The scary thing about it is simply that it's got a lot of power, but the other scary thing is... If that power collapses, what comes in to replace it, because nature abhors a vacuum, what comes in to replace it is not necessarily going to be any better. In fact, it may well be quite a lot worse. So I think that mixed feelings are in order. What one would wish for in the United States is, okay, you've got all this power. Live up to it. It so frequently degenerates into this kind of silly debates about Clinton's front zipper and, you know, what John Kerry said and even Dick Cheney shooting somebody by accident. I mean, those are all really kind of trivial subjects of of discourse that people shouldn't waste their time on them. They should be looking at the big picture and using their power for the greater good if we're still going to believe in such a thing. Margaret Atwood, are you working on a uh, big novel now? Well, you know, I never tell. I do have a book of poems coming out next fall. But after that, I mean, I never do predictions. You've been listening to an interview with Margaret Atwood, recorded in the KPFA studios in December 2006, and aired in a truncated version on KPFA on January 11, 2007. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>